You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 465 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined this week by Seth Miller and Fosma Moon. Gentlemen, hell of a year this first week of 2024 has been, huh? <laughs> Off to a bang. <laughs> oh. oh, man. We love that awesome. fact, but let's be careful about words we use. Yes. You don't say bomb on an airplane. Um, what about the Bombardier? <laughs> so I guess the first topic, let's talk about Japan Airlines. Uh, there was at Haneda Airport, Japan Airlines on final approach and landing hit a Japan Air Force um, Q400. Was it a Q400 or a Q200? It was a three, but Q3. Yeah, it hit a da- it had a, it hit a another yeah. plane. Yeah. Killed killed five of the six crew members on board, um, and uh, the Japan Airlines flight then came to rest down the runway, kind of veered off it a little bit. Uh, but the big news is, is everyone on the Japan Airlines flight made it off the plane safely and alive. Yeah, um, which I mean, th- 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 amazing. Yes, and I think and it was coming from Hokkaido, uh, CTS Sapporo, uh, Sapporo. Okay, so yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, there's a lot that's going on with, with Japan Airlines with uh, with this. There's a lot of questions on why the uh, Air Force plane lined up on the runway. Um, there's questions about the NOTAMs around the the, the lights on the for the runway. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. the the NOTAM you're talking about, there was a the runway act like when you're driving onto the runway. There's usually flashing lights that let you know you're entering a runway. Yep. Those lights were out of service, but there's also there's also red lights that's a new system for telling you that the runway is in use and there is a conflict. Oh, is, there's actually and that's what the was. That's what the notum was. Okay, so I mean, bummer certainly, but I feel like that's a, you know bell suspenders and like that's got to be the third or fourth thing that gets put on. Yeah. So not not an excuse, but you know, bummer. Like it would have been nice to have yet another layer of safety there, I guess, but. Um, yeah, I think to me the fact that everybody got off is incredible. This is the first hull loss of a 350. It's the first carbon fiber full plane fuselage full fire, mm-hmm. and I guess Airbus and Boeing do them slightly differently. Airbus is panels, whereas Boeing is a full cylinder construction. So, but there's been a long history, not a long, but like a lot of speculation about what fire will do to one of these and how it will burn. What you know are the tactics and systems available for firefighting sufficient um certainly like in the electric car world we've seen that traditional firefighting approach doesn't work in the next generation of stuff so they've got to come up with a new plan um well right the batteries fire catch on fire way differently than fuel in a car obviously fuselage is different as well the plane is gone like it melted yeah there's nothing left the wings are there right Mm -hmm. they weren't carbon fiber but like the fuselage is gone that was crazy and and it they stay evacuated the plane it's hard to tell when the evacuation started i guess like we're trying to i think the investigation is still trying to piece the timeline of everything together to get an accurate picture of how long it actually took people to get off the plane some initial reports are like 18 minutes which speaks to how the airframe held up yeah um yeah i think what i saw was seven minutes after impact is when the evac started and it took 11 minutes for them to get the last people out like most people are out very quickly um but the pilot had the captain was like had to do their typical last person off sweeps the plane and found some people on board still who were uh, unkeen to try to get out, mm. which is also crazy to me, but 
Yeah, it's like you, you guys need to get off the plane. Um, no, no, it's more dangerous out there than it is in here on fire. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think from the perspective of over, I mean, Japanese culture. I think played a part in how well people got off. Like I didn't see any of the photos and videos. There's no one carrying bags. Yeah. Which is, I, I think the opposite of what we've seen in a lot of recent evacuations of airplanes in the U S and probably in Europe. Um, so good on them for yeah. following destruction instructions. Right. right. Um, to, I don't, you know, to the same, to that point though, like they also can board that plane in 15 minutes. Like honestly, getting everybody off in 10 is kind of normal pace. <laughs> In some ways, right? I, I mean, it I'm is, it is very, it, no, no, you're not wrong. Like, it is very odd to me that they can board a full 789 in like seven minutes. And, but, I mean, but the counterpoint to that, right? Like, part of the, from what I was reading, the, the exits they used were questioned. So the forward right, they used both at the nose and the rear left, I believe. Yep. Um, the front, the nose gear had collapsed, so the front slide, the front was down. That meant the rear was at a very steep angle. It was still touching the ground at the bottom. That's the angle it's built for, right? They, when they design that slide, it's based on if the nose gear is down and it's tilted on its nose and the ass is up in the air, how long does the slide need to be to still be safe? Um, and that's the angle it was working at. But like, I think there's some concern that the right engine was still running during at least part of the evac. The fan yeah. played bidding, and so no one got sucked in, thank goodness. But, um, yeah, some interesting there. Yeah, because in, in the videos, it does look like the engine is on. Like, there's there's ash and sparks, I guess, flying from the rear of the engine. So not only are the fan blades spinning, but it's like, is it actually pushing things out? Yeah. Um, which, I mean, you know, because fan blades spin if there's wind. So Right, it's how fast yeah. are they spinning. And I guess part of that is, like, if you can see them spinning, they're spinning slow enough that they can't hurt you. Yeah, I I don't know. So I, that that's like I think where the investigation piece is important yeah. you know, because I think people are like, okay, what was actually going on? Um, so it'll be, I think it'll be enlightening to know. Did the pilots shut everything down? Did they not? Were they not able to shut it down? Because there's also questions about how much communication was being able to be made from yeah. the flight attendants to the passengers and from the pilots to the flight attendants because of damage to the plane. Yeah. One of the interesting things I read about uh, sort of as a follow-up in that is from a pilot actually saying basically like, if necessary, flight attendants have the authority to, to order evac. If, mm -hmm. the, if the pilot the pilot can give the order and the flight attendants generally will follow it, although if they look out and we're like, no, no, like we're on a, you know, a lava pit and everything's on fire, maybe not. And they might try to you know go back to the pilots on that. But typically if either orders the evac, it happens. Um, now there's timing question about what got shut down, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously some risk there if they do it without good communication, but seems that everything ended well in this one or mm. as well as good. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Foz? Like A350, do you think this uh, shows off features of the A350 at this point? I mean, well, at least we know when we have to decommission them and they're easy to just put them on fire. <laughs> God, please don't do that. <laughs> you mean no, they... no, no, the black smoke is good. It's cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, a little disturbing looking at the picture of what's left. It's a little unnerving. Yeah. I would like to see it compared to the Asiana airframe. Like, those two kind of, not superimposed, but next to each other, maybe? The 777? The 777, yeah. I mean, that still looked like an airframe at the end. Did it? I want to look at pictures now. Now I gotta go look. Continue talking. Yeah. I think that, that was definitely, I, I, I seem to, I agree with Foz, I seem to recall it being much more 
Oh yeah, I'm looking at the Stop picture. Now. Destroy and remove. It was basically the it, the interior was black, but right. the entirety of the hull was intact. It looks like. Yeah. Also, that one got put out pretty quick, relatively compared to the 350. The 350 took like six hours to finally be fully extinguished. I think. Do we know why that is? Was it because of the chemicals? You know, like they're not electric cars, so it's not right. like lithium-ion batteries here. But I don't know. Okay. There's going to be a lot of that, by the way, also in today's episode. We just don't know so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else do you want to talk about with this? Not much? No, I mean... Do you want to move on to the next topic then? Yeah, I'm st- I still remain amazed that everybody got out okay. I, I think it's amazing that the firefighters didn't hit anybody. I, I was talking to a pilot friend of mine, and he said that's actually probably the biggest fear he has, which yeah. is firefighters which happened during the asiana crash but firefighters not being able to see especially it's nighttime um and it's there's a there's a plane on fire so they're focused on that so your peripheral vision everything's focused like you're hyper focused on getting the fire put out and he said that his one of his greatest fears is like getting evacuating people off a plane and then one of them getting hit by a fire truck yeah um so it's amazing that didn't happen uh very minor injuries amongst the passengers so it's wild also, no one brought their bags because they're not jerks. This is tr- very true. Um, so I think the next topic we should talk about is Alaska Airlines here in Portland. Portland's just not having a good aviation beginning of end of the year, beginning of the new year, I guess, between the pilot, you know, hij- trying to hijack the plane. Uh, <laughs> and and then this, uh, which is there was a rapid deep compression um, the plug that is used on a 737 Max 9, it's actually used on a number of 737-900s. It's a plug to use that's used uh, in the case of um, if, a pl- if a plane carries more than a certain number of people, it needs more exits. Um, Alaska doesn't have their planes flying at that density, so this plug is installed. That plug uh, came off. I, we don't really know what happened, um, but it, it explosively came off the plane. Uh, and landed in someone's backyard in Portland. Bob. Huh? They landed in Bob's backyard. Bob's backyard. Uh, and uh, the plane returned to Portland, landed safely. Um, everyone's okay. But when you see the pictures of this, it could have been very bad. And yeah, someone could so have been lost. Yeah. The uh, 189 is the seat count that requires the extra door. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at 189 seats, they'd have to use this as an extra exit instead of the plug. Um, I'm also, I sort of understand the terminology. I think it gets, it's gotten very confusing in some of the conversations online over the weekend, sort of trying to figure out what's what. In theory, like the door version, the exit door version, there's actually two exit door versions. One is an active exit. Mm. So like uh, Corindon, which is the European airline, has a high density config. Lion Air has a high density config. They use it as an exit. Um, There's also... Iceland Air, Fly Dubai, and now I'm blanking on the third one. I've been going through them all weekend. Uh, it'll come to me. Uh, have the small window there, like it's an exit door. So on the outside, it looks like an exit. It looks like a small window instead of a big window. But on the inside, it's just a panel. There's just no window in that row. Mm. So it's a like deactivated door. And then there's the third type, which is what uh, Copa has that on some of its planes. So I think that's the third one. Copa has a split config. And then Aeromexico, Copa, United, and Alaska all have the window version, which is sort of like 
the the deactivated door except it's a bigger window and so it's in in all of these cases it's sort of this the fuselage is built with a gap there and the gap is flexible so the airline can choose to either have an exit or a window yep and it can switch like it's a maintenance task and whatever but like you know, if Alaska Airlines sells their 737 Maxes on to or 900 ERs, turns out, onward to someone who wants to put 200 seats on board, they take it into maintenance, they pop the one plug out, they put the exit door in, they put it back together, everybody's happy. So um, it's sort of like it's the same mount points and locking positions or very close to similar. So in that sense, the fact that no one wanted to check the planes with the other type is a little weird to me. Um, is... Okay, so that's one point. But I mean, to, to give people an idea as well, this is, it's four bolts that hold this in place, right? Well, it's a, hold on, it's a locking mechanism and four bolts. Okay, so there's like a mechanism that locks the plug into place and four bolts as well that bolt into the airplane. Yeah, so the four bolts basically keep the lock from moving in theory. And is that the same if it moves to an exit? Like if you if you change the config and you have an exit there? You probably don't have the bolts because the bolts are like, they go through the okay. okay okay i, just, I mean i I've, I've had a few questions come up for me that i'm just thinking of high level right I, I get your point seth if alaska wants to resell this plane on the market and the airline they want to sell it to wants to put more people on it this is an ease of use thing for that yeah however shouldn't boeing why shouldn't boeing I, this is a better way to ask it why shouldn't boeing deliver the plane with no plug and just a filled-in skin of of the hull because that's the config you're buying. Because it would probably require retooling of the assembly line. I mean, sort of laziness. Well, no, because here's the thing: it's it's designed to have it as a flexible option for the airlines. They decided that it was, um, and it is it's money is at the end of the day is the answer. But they decided it was an easier construction design to be able to have basically like the plug option, and then the airline just picks which way they want it. The counterpoint to that, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, is the 8200. The Max 8200 is a Max 8 with essentially the exit slide version of this plug installed at the back. And to do that, Boeing actually swaps a fuselage, you know, solid fuselage panels for this fuselage that has the hole for the exit door in it uh, in the in the assembly process and makes it work. So... In theory, they could have done the 900 ER that way and the, and the Max 9 that way. They chose to do the plug option to keep the future flexibility and value of the aircraft. Okay. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I'm. Do you see where I'm going with this, though? Yeah. Like, why, why do you have a an option of hardware here that like is less structurally sound than? It's a point old? of weakness. It's a point of weakness. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So our windows. We should get rid of those. I mean, look at flying metal tubes. <laughs> That windowless metal tubes. Uh, to be fair, right? The 739s have had the plug for a while, and they've been flying for quite some time with no issue. Yeah, yeah. We're pushing two decades on this. Yeah, so it's not like this is something new. So the question is, why? Why now? Mm-hmm. And and from what I understand is this plane has had pressurization issues in the in its short life because it was delivered on Halloween of twenty twenty three. Uh, the, to your point, there have been the lights gone on a number of times to the point where Alaska said they were not going to fly this to Hawaii because they wanted to be close to an airport if something went wrong. They they de topped it essentially. The specific airframe, yes. Yep. Okay. Um, and so I mean, all of this to say, now there's a big movement among United uh, airlines that are flying the Max Nine to do a, an inspection. 
Um, and now it's FAA mandated. Is that right, Seth? Yeah. So this is where things get additionally weird. The FAA came, the incident happened Friday night, uh, five o'clock local time in Portland, roughly. Yep. Uh, FAA dispatched a team, was out west pretty quickly, actually grounded the type in what I would say is magnificently quickly for FAA standards. It was within 24 hours of the incident. There was a, a statement put out, uh, these planes are grounded. Uh, they put, issued an emergency airworthiness directive to cause that. And here's where, like, the second part of where things get super weird about the whole incident. They grounded the planes and said, and the grounding is a pretty generic, right, the emergency airworthiness, yeah, EAD, the airworthiness directive is sort of generic in its terms. It basically says these planes cannot fly until they have been inspected and approved under a policy acceptable to the FAA. And then it's basically talk to your local FAA rep to find out what that means. Um, and I'm going to take a half step back here to explain where we ended up so you understand why I think what happened on Saturday is crazy. Uh, eventually, Boeing ha- issues a multi-operator message, which is basically an alert to all operators of a type that says, this airplane has this potential risk, please inspect it this way. The FAA looks at that and says, yep, that checks out, we're comfortable, that will be sufficient to address the issue. That message becomes the sort of an addendum into the EAD and becomes part of the file. And then airlines have to take that, understand what it means, put together a set of inspections and whatever that meets the qualifications of what Boeing is saying, get that signed off by the FAA and move forward with it. And then as each one is done, the plane can return to service. You with me? Yep. The like, all that stuff about the multi-operator message and everything after that that I said didn't happen before the initial return to service of these planes. The initial compliance inspection would appears to have been something that was already in the standard inspection process for the Max 9 and that plug that happens during a seat check, a heavy maintenance check. Because very shortly after the initial grounding, United indicated that it had 33 planes that were eligible to immediately return to service and Alaska had 18. And they both said these planes have been recently inspected and approved to return to service because we're comfortable that if there's a problem, it would have been found during that inspection before the heavy, the sea check. And then like four hours later or so, the FAA was like, oops, maybe not. You should keep those on the ground too. And like regrounded and changed it. And both United and Alaska issued statements that sort of danced around it, but basically said we were operating our place because the FAA said it was okay. And then the FAA said it wasn't okay again. And now we're waiting to get the guidance from Boeing and the FAA on what we actually need to check additionally. So, so they put planes in the air. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it seems like the FAA approved it and then unapproved it in some way, which is pretty crazy to me. So you took a step back. Yeah. Now, now step back forward for us. So (laughs) yeah. I love that. Wow. Fosbuff's not a real genius reference for those of you who are not properly uh, educated in the ways of spectacular uh, Val Kilmer movies. Um, I'm glad you got the reference. Uh, yeah, me, me too. I'm glad you made it. Thank you. This is my afternoon is so much better now. Uh, about the uh, so uh, getting back to the mom and that what whatnot. Part of the problem was they didn't have the door. Mm. They had to find the door to figure out what happened. They could look at the plane half. But until they recovered the door, they only had, at best, half the story. And so uh, th- now we go back to Bob. Bob found the door. Uh, they actually, the NTSB chair was giving her a briefing at 8 o'clock local time Sunday night. Uh, and it indicated they still hadn't found the door. They found two phones, both still working, by the way, which is also incredible. 
but still hadn't found the door. And she closed the briefing and walked off the walked away from the podium and immediately went back. It was like, oh, oops, one more thing. We just found the door. Thanks, Bob. So I found the door late on Sunday. And apparently at 3 a.m. Pacific, Boeing was able to issue its mom. Okay. The FAA confirmed that it was issued right around noon Eastern today or 9 a.m. Pacific. And then I assumed, based on that, that there was a plan in place and they're ready to go with the inspections. Since then, Alaska Airlines has indicated it is now preparing what it says its inspections will be to meet the guidance provided. So the guidance provided is not like unscrew this, rescrew that, tighten this to this foot pounds torque, whatever. It's make sure the door's still there, please. <laughs> um, and they're coming, they have to come up with an additional set of detailed inspection criteria and processes. The FAA will then sign off on those as the, it's called an alternative means of compliance, uh, which is standard for these things. And then once that's approved, they can start implementing it. So it's still going to be a little bit before it's implemented. Um, but also goes back to, I want to say, when the FAA put out the original notice, it said the inspection should take 48 hour, four to eight hours per aircraft. So the FAA had something in mind initially mm-hmm. and then seems to have changed its mind. And I bet I give the FAA credit for acting promptly, grounding the planes in the name of safety. I have questions about things like why is the 900ER not included with the same plug, assuming it is the same plug. It sort of looks the same to me. Yep. Um, but looks can be deceiving. But then, like, not backing up and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa never mind, we, we're actually changing the inspection based on additional data or anything else that sounds and looks like, uh, you know, taking responsibility. I mean, and, and this has caused chaos a little bit. For, it's caused several hundred canceled flights. And I think, or not, in some cases, in the case of Alaska, they just won't cancel flights until the very last moment. That has been bad. Fair enough. Yeah. I, it, is, do you think the airlines are talking to the FAA and going, if you make this about the 900s, you're really going to screw us? There's a lot more 900s. Maybe. We, we Look, the 900s have been flying for a long time with no issue, right? Yeah. So, so the question is, and we don't know, right? Was there any changes to the design? Could this been like a, a bad batch of metal where one of the locks failed? Right. There's a lot of things we don't know. So I think it'd be too soon to make that conjecture. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There's definitely some concern there. I think finding finding out what happened and getting more details from either the FAA or Boeing and or the NTSBA, right? Eventually we will know um, most everything that happened. There's another little caveat to that most part there. Like, But like everything in the aviation world, we all want to know quickly exactly what happened there's a lot of people out there saying oh it was definitely a this it was certainly a that and like saying definitely and certainly right now seems like a bad idea to me it definitely blew up the door definitely separated from the airplane while it was in service we can definitely say that whose fault it was i'm not so sure it's definite yeah i mean i see people trying to like play blame on boeing or alaska and everyone's like well who installed the plug and yada yada yada. spirit aero systems spirit aero systems is their fault it's like we don't know i do know that this plane's had issues with pressurization for a while I mean, to me, some of that onus lies on Alaska. Like, you didn't put it up for ETOPS for a reason. Yeah, you took you de-ETOPSed it for a reason. Yeah, well, uh, what was the inspection protocol? How long is it allowed to fly with pressure problems before you were going to actually get it into a base and sort of figure out what's going on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's questions there. Um, I will say, uh, one of the things a lot of people have noted, it's way better that this happened at 16,000 feet instead of 30,000 feet. Um, the plane would not have been moving quite as fast. And the pressure differential is lower. So I actually had an interesting conversation with a pilot friend of mine who flies. I won't say what airline 
or anything, but flies big jets. Um, I actually had a conversation with him the night this happened, so he didn't look at he didn't know it had happened. It uh, I, I was at a, a birthday party and he was there, so I just asked him the question. He actually said by sixteen thousand feet they're fully pressurized, so they yes, so okay. they the pressure differential with the outside is probably lower, right? Like, but the explosiveness of depressurization would have been the same regardless. Um, yes, speed would have mattered because you know then there's air rushing through the hole or by the hole, um, but. From a from an explosive explosive point of view, not as bad. Yeah, or the same. I the guess. same. Yes. No. Agreed. Um, I had a, a similar conversation with a pilot this morning at the gym, and he was like, you know, lower speed definitely helped, lower altitude because they weren't in service. But and so, I seatbelts light would have still been on, flight attendants were still bolt buckled in, most likely, um, et cetera, et cetera. But also, uh, you know, they would have been pushing three hundred miles an hour, like speed ramping up, doing their climb getting ready, you know, trying to get up to 30 pretty quick so they could have their flight. So there's some interesting things there. I think I mentioned earlier the fact that two iPhones got sucked out of the window, or yep. not window, the hole, uh, and both were found on the ground working. It's kind of crazy. It's pretty incredible. Um, one of them was unlocked, which also is bizarre, but whatever. Lock your phones, people. Yeah. Lock your phones. The guy's name, they, they, uh, the person who posted the picture had whited out the PNR but left the, name, the passenger name in, so that's funny. Yeah, I mean, they were able to get in their email. <laughs> which is... yeah, the email was up on the screen. He said, like, when, like, what are the odds that you would have been looking at your receipt from having checked your bag while you were on the plane and then the phone got ripped out of your hand and it flew away? Yeah. But uh, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that somewhat by, completely by accident, um, coincidentally, the two seats in that row, A and B, uh, were empty. And there were, I mean, this plane was pretty full. Yeah, there were six empty seats on board. Two of them were that, were those two. Yeah. 26A um, and B. Uh, if you look at the picture, there's also, unfortunately, an initial report said that the seat was missing. Uh, looking at the photos, that is not the case. They, the seat cover, the cover dressing, the leather, pleather, whatever that they put on it, was ripped off the top. And the headrest was ripped off of 25A and 26A. But this, and 25A, the one right in front, is torqued quite impressively. The seat is bent. Mm-hmm like twisted towards the wind, but the seats are still there. The seat belts are still attached from what I could tell uh, in the picture. So those are rated to a 16 G impact. It would be pretty hard to get those to rip off. Obviously with a body in the seat belt, that would provide some additional force that that body was trying to get ripped out of the plane. But uh, yeah, it held together pretty well. I think, I think what's fascinating. I mean, I think you brought up a good point. One, it was at a lower altitude, so people were still... I mean, it was in, in its climb, so they weren't at cruise yet. Yeah. So people were still in their seatbelts, right? Um, again, wear your seatbelt on takeoff and landing. Wear it. I don't care that it's uncomfortable. Wear it. It matters. Um, and uh, people weren't walking around. The flight attendants were up, weren't up. Now, they probably were starting to get up, I would think, at 16,000 feet, because they get up earlier. Yeah. I would think they were kind of in that act when this probably happened. In Portland, it's a little weird, because they typically wait until... They've climbed out at least over the if they're going southeast or south uh, east, they'll wait till they're kind of past um, the Cascades, just because it's a mountain range, and I think for safety reasons they're not always up above. You know, they're not a cruise yet typically, yeah. um, and so you don't hear the, the ding. Um, they'll pilots will wait to do the ding. Um, so I mean, I I think that was a, there's a lot of luck there. Could you imagine if a flight attendant had been walking by, like I. Yes. Be that would have been really, would have been really bad. It would have been a what was that? Was that United or Hawaiian that lost a flight attendant because of the decompression? I believe it was a United one. Someone referenced it in one of my posts. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think Aloha too. 
Oh yeah, Lamar had the whole top rip off of it, seven thirty seven. But I didn't think they lost anyone on that. I thought they did, but I made mean, it been so long. So yeah, that's an old one. That was a classic, like a seven thirty seven classic, the original generation, I believe. Well, or or seven thirty seven convertible. Yeah, two four three. Um, fatalities one. Yeah, okay. Uh, there was a person, uh, flight attendant Clarabelle Lansing, was ejected from the airplane on the Aloha flight. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, there's a lot that happened, or a lot that could have happened that was much worse that didn't um um i i think the overall handling of this has been from alaska has been interesting um like we said like they haven't they're not canceling flights necessarily they're finally getting around to canceling some um i think united's been a little more proactive with cancellations of the max or moving planes in i what i worry about with united because they have so many more 900s and 900 ers they they're putting in placeholders for 900s but i don't know that they're actually going to fly the segment if the plane's not available. So one thing I'll say, I'll give Alaska credit. They're communicating about this, right? Yes. They were, they were right, off, right off the bat, they were up there. Where they're failing is managing the operations. Yeah, where those things are scheduled. Right? We have a friend who's been, who was scheduled to fly on one, and they literally waited to, what, 12 hours before, 16 hours before to cancel it. With eight-hour phone hold times. Yeah. And I think that is where uh, the issue is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I just, I wonder... I mean, do you see my point, though, Faz? Like, if United just goes through the schedule and says, okay, we're updating all these Max 9s to 900 ERs, or they're throwing in a placeholder, there's not enough planes physically for United to to meet that as a schedule. Yeah, and United has said they canceled 250 flights or so on Sunday, or they had 250 scheduled, 180 got canceled, and 70 they were able to recover by swapping aircraft. So they have some slack in the system. Like, in some ways, great that this happened in the winter after peak January travel. Um, yep. MLK weekend is sort of is a holiday, but not a huge one for travel. So like, there's a little bit of slack in the system, um, but that's not going to last forever. Well, yeah. and right now the wide bodies aren't as busy either, so they can start filling wide some of the gaps with wide bodies and reducing frequencies. Yeah, but but and we're gonna have to see how that react, how that happens. But it's uh, there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, I agree with you though, Boz. Alaska has been great at communications. Um, Boeing, not surprisingly, has been basically silent, which is awkward. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot they can say until anyone found the door and they could say what needed to happen, right? I would expect at this point, though, with the repair, whatever plan in place, this the mom out there, I don't think it's unreasonable for Boeing to come out and say, we responded, to, and maybe it's, they aren't because NTSB is still investigating, but we responded to the incident. This is what we found so far. This is what we're asking our airline partners to inspect. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. If cooperate with all the regulators and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I just sent you guys a screenshot um, if you want to look real quick. So I just, yeah. I didn't, my, originally, I have a flight coming up on Wednesday. Um, it was originally a 737-900ER. This just came through. Uh, oh, congrats. It swapped it to a max. But That's what's nice. weird well, what's weird is it's it's a 900 in the reservation, but in the flight status, it's a Max 9. <laughs> so I don't know what to believe, but that seems odd to me. So yeah, well, I, did. I mean, Alaska's, you know, they're changing it in some places, but not others. So if you pull up, like, I have a flight uh, later this week, and I mean, it sounds Max 9. Do we expect airlines to actually be able to do this well? I mean... I mean, it's kind of what they do. They fly airplanes. You would think they know where those airplanes are, what they're going to fly. Well, more importantly, why is, aren't they relying on a single set of data? Well, that's yeah. separate systems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Also, Stephen, that's pretty awesome. What's also pretty awesome is that that flight number actually is a different route on other days. So it's harder to track what's actually going on. Yeah, it's great. And they just did this today. I, the only reason I, I mean, thanks. Shout out to Flyy for telling me that this changed because I didn't know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. Anything else you guys want to talk about with this? I think it'll be interesting to see what we find out. There's a yeah. lot of unknowns. Yeah, how many planes get pulled? That'll be, like, how many planes are, oh, we have to fix these six. Yeah. Found a yeah. problem. We'd, I would love to know what they're actually looking for. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Hopefully Maybe the FAA will tell us Yeah. some point. <laughs> it, it eventually becomes somewhat public, like the documentation becomes part of the EAD and it becomes public record, usually. So Yeah, but that takes time, right? Yeah. All right. Well, um, to our listeners, we're gonna we're gonna jump over to the, the bonus topics. We're gonna talk a little bit about Starlux and their credit cards, a little bit about Air Asia, and then uh, Seth uh, being a dum dum and messing something up. So, Two things, actually. I've got a new one to add to that. Sweet. So we're gonna talk about that and uh, stick around if you're a Patreon subscriber. If you're not, thanks for listening to the show, supporting us. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next time. Happy travels. Take care. See you later.